Good morning from me. My name's Peter. I'm one of the pastors here. Good to have you at church. When it comes to truth, uh, you just need to know if you haven't noticed that we're living in a, in a very confused world. It, it actually wasn't that long ago where people believed that there were some things that were actually right and some things that were actually wrong, like objectively right and objectively wrong. But it's just not the case so much anymore. And uh, part of the reason for it, I think a large part of the reason for it is over the last 200 years or so, there's been a couple of belief systems that have come in that have struck at the heart of people who believe uh, that. And, and that's been, I think, most of history, that people have believed that some things are right and some things are actually wrong. One of these theories is the theory of naturalistic evolution. We all know about Charles Darwin, he, uh, he was the one who kind of kicked this off uh, in the 1800s. A big idea of it is that all that is, is physical and, uh, and everything which has come about has come about through random mutations. Uh, there's pretty much nothing going on other than the physical reality and survival of the fittest. And one of uh, the champions of uh, naturalistic evolution is an atheist guy who you might have heard of called Richard Dawkins and he's 82 and so he has promoted this view over and over and over and he says this about the universe in a universe of electrons and selfish genes blind physical forces and genetic replication some people are going to get hurt other people are going to get lucky and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it nor any justice the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Now you want to pick me up on a Sunday morning to just get you going, ready for the week? You read that, right? And partway through Dawkins' life, and he's still alive, he's, he's 82 now, partway through his life, that the second kind of physical thing hit a philosophical thing, I should say, hit. Um, and and it, was, it was an approach to art and meaning and truth and it began to, uh, to take hold. Uh, it was quite a broad movement, but at the core of it, what it maintained is that truth isn't objective. Uh, it's subjective. It depends on the individual. It depends on the, the group of people who are deciding what truth is. And it was... Uh, one of the terms for it is postmodernism. You might have heard of that. You might have heard of relativism. Um, and, and what it did is it actually changed good and evil from things that were objectively right and wrong to preferences. This is the one that I prefer. I prefer it to be this way, but it's not actually right and it's not actually wrong. Maybe you don't prefer things to be a certain way and so what actually happened is it wasn't about what was true anymore it was about what was true for you what was true for me and you just need to know in case you don't that this is the air that we all breathe this is the culture that we're actually in and this air this this idea that it's not what's true it's about what's true for you is has moved into the the category of human identity and that's what we've seen over the last uh, little while. You know, human identity used to be about discovering who you were. Now it's about you deciding who you are. And that's a big difference. It's a massive difference. Um, but but here's, here's the bottom line. Despite everyone's assertions about, um, or our culture's assertions about truth being relative, you can't actually live like that. It just doesn't work. Uh, you only need to look at Dawkins' comments on the screen to know that. If Dawkins is right that there's no purpose, then his two sentences are utter nonsense. Because they're purposeless and they're meaningless too. Do you, do you see my point? And you can see the fact that the framework that we're running with in our culture doesn't actually work. You can see it all over the place because what you have is at a street level, people don't want to judge other people because they want to leave space for the person to work out what is true for them. But then what actually happens is that there's all these people that act in antisocial ways and they do things uh, that, that, we just, that we don't approve, that aren't good and we want to actually condemn them. 
But your problem is that if truth and what is good is relative to the individual, it makes it very hard to condemn them. But that doesn't seem to stop people, <laughs> right? Um, so, so we have these news reports. I've seen it over and over and over on 60 Minutes where they say, this evil person. And I sit there and I go, you don't even really believe that, right? You think the truth and good and evil is relative, but you want to sit there and you want to actually call someone evil. And, and what we've done, I think, in our culture is we boil down truth and falsehood or good and evil more precisely to, our, to whether it hurts people or not, right? That, that's kind of how we're running. But I'd ask you, what's your definition of hurt? What's that? Um, it wasn't that long ago I was watching the news and... It was a news story about a woman who'd done a particularly bad thing. And I sat there and I thought, that is an evil thing to do. And do you know what they said in the last part of the news report? They said the reason why this woman did this evil thing is not because she did something that was wrong, but the government hadn't supported her enough. You know, and I sat there and I said, well, government support is going to be helpful and people always sin in a context, but you did an evil thing. And I remember um, asking the question of one of my family when they came home. I said, why don't they just say that they did something that's wrong? Why does it have to go to blaming the government? Um, it's a mess. It's an absolute mess. Is anyone with me on that? It's an absolute mess. And, and listen, it, it gets worse, right? Because it's actually worse than it sounds. Um, and, and, and let me tell you what happens. This is what happens. Amidst this lack of clarity about what good and evil is, people do evil things to each other and they hurt each other. And so what we've actually got in our culture is we've got all this hurt and this trauma floating around. There's hurt and there's trauma everywhere. In fact, this is the big kind of movement. It's one of the big movements in counselling and psychology at the moment is talking about trauma. And trauma and hurt just floats in the air because no one seems able to say that something's objectively right or wrong. And so it just, it's the, it just floats in the air. Just didn't work out for you. It wasn't good for you. And people, so many people live with this unease, this sense that nothing is right. This hurt and trouble that can't be dealt with because there's no clarity about what actually happened in the first place. <clears throat> so many people's hurt, pain and scars are ambiguous. They're unclear and that's a problem. You know why that's a problem? Because when good and evil are unclear, pain, trauma and the path to restoration are too. Just how it works. Now, you might be sitting there and you might be going, well, um, glad it's not like this in, in church. <laughs> and uh, I'd just say, well, not so fast, hot shot. Right? Um, because, you know, relativism, postmodernism, the subjective centre of truth has a very, very long history. A very long history. In fact, a history that runs the whole way back to the fall of humanity. Because it actually finds its root in humanity wanting to be the determiner of what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. Rather than letting God do it. And it has devastating consequences. And uh, I think as, as we read uh, Malachi 2, 17 to 3 verse 5 before, uh, you might have seen that in there. Uh, and so today... Uh, as per usual, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at moral ambiguity. Uh, if something is ambiguous, it's not clear. The effects of moral ambiguity and the antidote. Let's kick in. Moral ambiguity. You've wearied the Lord with your words. Have we wearied him, you ask, by saying all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he is pleased with them, or where is the God of justice? These, the people, the Israelites, have made God tired. 
And how do they make him tired? How do they weary him? By thinking two things about good and evil. (laughs) The first thing is that God approves of it. The second thing is that he's not interested in bringing about justice. Just go, wow, what what an incredible call to actually make. I mean, here's an Australian way to put it. He doesn't think evil matters and he isn't going to do anything about it anyway. That's the, that's the essence of it. Um, they think that what God, they think that God thinks what they're doing is fine. <laughs> Have you ever had that thought? Where you do something, you go, oh, it doesn't matter. He's not going to do anything about it anyway. And, and I'm not just talking about the big ticket items here, folks. I'm talking about the detailed areas as well. It's about the small things as well. This is the thread that runs from the fall right through humanity to the present day we we have an issue of calling evil things good and saying that it doesn't matter to god and that he doesn't care about it and he's not going to do anything about it here's uh the way that Isaiah puts it he, he says this very thing because this is not just an israel in malachi's time issue this is a human issue he says uh, woe to those who call good Uh, it's called sorry woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter it's just one of the things that happened right in fallen humanity and here's the thing i mean the one thing that we see in malachi's time is this made its way into god's people and you would be a brave, brave person to say it hasn't made its way into God's people here, <laughs> right? Because that, that is a virus that has been passed on, which began at the fall. And here's, here's the bottom line. When humanity takes on the responsibility of defining what is right and wrong, good and evil become unclear, all right? It happens all the time, Right? It absolutely happens all the, all the time. It's always the case. And so what I want to do is I want to make something really clear to you. And it's, it's, it's a shame that I have to say this, right? Because it's very basic. And it's like it ought to be self-evident. But because of the culture that we live in, it's just not. Uh, you ready? Some things are good and some are evil some things are right and some are wrong. There you go. That was the mind-blowing revelation for today. Now, there are things that are morally complex. I accept that. And we could have a long conversation about that, and I'll be up for that. But most of the time, what is right and what is wrong is very clear. Is, Is anyone with me on this? Okay, you can cover me at the end. You ready? I'm going to give you some examples. Really basic examples. You ready? Speaking gracious, upbuilding words is good and right. Slandering and gossiping about people is evil and it's wrong. True? Very simple. Here's another one. Sacrificing yourself for the benefit of someone else is good and right. Selfishness is evil and wrong. Anyone give me an amen? I'm not setting you up for anything, right? I, I'm just something. You've been here long enough, you go, he's, he's, he's got something cooking at this point. But here we go. Telling the truth is good and right. Lying is evil. And wrong. Everyone good so far? Okay. Do you know why this is the case? Because you and I are not the standard of what is good and evil. We are not the standard of what is true. God is the standard of what is good. He is the standard of what is true. And we are measured by him. Okay. This is really important. And, and I mean, there's lots of reasons why you do this. I mean, one of them is that God's God and he rules everything right but another thing that you could say is we are image bearers of his so so the the 
the person by which we're meant to be measured is the person of God himself because we're made to reflect him. Now, what Malachi is going to go on and do in the kind of the bookend, the other kind of bookend of this passage is he's going to talk about the effects of moral ambiguity. All right? When good and evil becomes unclear, what kinds of things happen? What are the downstream effects? And that's what we're going to look at here. The effects of moral ambiguity. I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers. That's witchcraft. People grasping for control or power but not going to the Lord. Adulterers. Now, I want you to notice something. That the first category of sorcerer is the only category that's not a social evil, right? And, and once we get to the second one, then we're just going on this run at this point in time of all this injustice that is going on in the place. The first one is adulterer, sleeping with someone else's wife. Then perjurer. Well, what's perjury? It's lying. From white lies to lies kind of at a high end in a court. And then we get to the next one, against those who defraud labourers of their wages, not paying people what you should, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, taking advantage of people who are weak and have no one to speak on their behalf. And the last one there, um, depriving the foreigners among you of justice. That's people from outside of Israel that were in there who are living in there and are reliant on the Israelites to look after them, but then the Israelites aren't doing that. And note what's said at the end of this, um, this verse. There's no fear of God. See, they don't see God clearly or respond to him rightly. And, and this, this list and others, other expressions of injustice, this is what always happens when people get unclear about who God is. It has a knock-on effect into the way they see good and evil, and then a knock-on effect um, to injustice. Here's how I put it. When your view of God becomes compromised, morality becomes murky, and injustice is inevitable. Now, you might remember the, um, the guy I quoted at the start of this sermon, Richard Dawkins. He doesn't believe in God. Do you remember what he said? The world has no justice and he's not fighting for it because it just doesn't have it. You see, he doesn't see God. Morality gets murky and then injustice happens and it just comes down to a matter of luck at that point. You know, and we could have an altar call, right? And just go, who would like to live in that world, Right? If your view of God is unclear, then you will be unclear about good and evil and you'll be unclear about injustice, pain and trauma and most importantly, you'll be unclear about the pathway to restoration. It feels a bit solemn today and I don't know. It is solemn, I think. It's a domino effect, right? I just want to take a moment to consider three things, and there's lots of things that do this. Um, three things which tend to throw out your view of God in a way which makes good and evil unclear. Here's the first one, uh, idolatry. I mentioned uh, something about this last week. Um, bottom line is that everyone worships all the time. There's no such thing as a non-religious human. It just comes down to the God that you're actually worshipping. Uh, there is always something which is mo most important to all of us. There's always something that we're centering our lives on. Uh, for those who are Christians, it's like, yeah, we kind of want that to be Jesus, but it's not always Jesus. And sometimes we can worship something else and serve something else. And that other thing can kind of become an idol or a false god to us uh, because no one actually worships Jesus consistently all of the time. And, and you just need to know that when you worship a false god, it actually comes with its own moral framework and it actually informs what you think is good and evil um, and, and what it does is it tells you that some things are good which aren't actually good and it tells you some things are evil which aren't actually evil and it just is different to what Jesus said and it just gets murky um, take money for example uh, if money becomes your god then moral goodness is getting more of it 
however you need to, and saving it. And people won't be as important to you as money. And so you're going to hurt people along the way because the, the, the God that you're worshipping is actually money. And, and way betide your happiness if you lose money or lose the ability to make it. Then that will be evil. And so on. Can, can you see what I'm saying? It, it, whenever you turn away from worshipping Jesus and you turn to something else, you turn to a false god and, and what comes with it is a whole moral framework. Here's another thing which I think can get a bit murky in terms of the way that we see God and how it plays out in the way that we see uh, good and evil. And it's, it's grace and love. And uh, I find this to be a huge issue in the church. It's, um, it's my pastoral experience that most church members' definitions of grace and love are just too narrow. Uh, we, we have this tendency, I think, in the church to talk about grace and love in a permissive and passive way. You know, that you get grace and you don't have to change anything. Or loving someone means you don't stand up to them. You know, and it even plays into the way, I think, that we think about God and how he's being gracious to us. You know, we can talk about God's grace and it's really good to talk about God's grace. And God loves us and he's gracious to us in our present state. But I'll tell you something, his grace isn't just about giving you permission to stay where you are. He is gracious to you so that you would change. This is exactly what Paul says in Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It's not the law that teaches you to say no to ungodliness, even though it does. It's God's grace that teaches you to say no. You know, Paul Tripp puts it this way. He says, God's grace is always grace leading to change. That's what it is. That's the nature of what grace is. Now, and sometimes I think in the church, we don't call out stuff that is actually wrong because it's like, well, we've just got to show grace and it has a permissive, passive kind of feel to it. Or take love, for example. These are not trick questions. Let me ask you a few questions for audience interaction here. Is God love? Okay. Is Jesus love? Was Jesus ever unloving? I was a bit muted. Was Jesus ever unloving? Okay, I'm just getting real uncomfortable. It's like, yes, no, he was. You don't have to answer this one, but if Jesus is love and he was never unloving, what do you call it when he stands up to people and tells them they're wrong? It's love. And you know, I, I have said this to many, many people in, in my time doing pastoral care in the church here. If someone is sinning against you and you don't do anything to stop them sinning against you, is that loving? It's not loving. It's not loving to them. It's not loving to Jesus. I mean, you can talk about self-love and it's like, oh, you've got to stop them from hurting you. And it's like, we can have that conversation, right? But it's actually not loving for someone who's sinning against you to let them keep doing it and to do stuff that enables them to keep doing it. You see, God doesn't roll like that. Seeing God's grace and love accurately is directly connected to seeing good and evil accurately. Right? Here's the last one. Discomfort. When, when you are a fallen human being and you look God squarely in the face... That is not a particularly comfortable place to be, right? Um, this, is, this, is what, this is how Isaiah puts it in, in his call in Isaiah 6. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. When you look at someone who is pure and righteous and never gets anything wrong, you know what it does? Is it just highlights your own failures your own faults, your own uncleannesses. I mean, it's part of the reason why it would have been annoying sometimes to be one of Jesus' siblings. 
wouldn't it? You know, you can never blame him for anything because it was never his fault. Drive you up the wall, wouldn't it? But that's kind of how it is when we look at God is we just go, what it actually does is it highlights our sin. It highlights where we've fallen short. And one of the things we can do with God is we can go, oh, well, we just don't want to look that closely, right? Because that's really uncomfortable. And you know, a same kind of dynamic or a similar dynamic can, can happen in horizontal relationships between us and other people is, is we, can, we can sin against someone and hurt them and just not want to look at it, right? And, and not even because we're in denial, like we, did, we could even say that we did something that actually hurt the other person, but, but we could just not want to look at the fullness of what we actually did because that's actually very uncomfortable. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? It's really uncomfortable. And, and maybe you just give a lame sorry for it, right? Um, or, or you just want to jump into grace and forgiveness. I mean, we all know that healthy reconciliation involves having a full idea of, as best as you can of what actually happened. Not just kind of a quick sorry and then you get on with it. I mean, it's, it's one of the reasons why when you actually say sorry to someone for something that you've done to them, you should just kind of put some pads on and wait for them to tell you what it was like, what you did to them because it's important to know what you've actually done. Like look in the eyes of it and see the ugliness of it. Seeing God clearly leads to seeing our mess clearly, which leads to seeing injustice clearly, which leads to seeing the pathway to reconciliation and restoration clearly. All of this raises the very real likelihood that some of you have been dealt some serious injustice. And you've got this pain and trouble in your soul. And it doesn't have anywhere to land because your understanding of good and evil is unclear. You know, you've made excuses for the other person. Folks, I'll tell you something. There's always a context for sin. There always is. But even after you've explained the context, it's still sin. People still sin against each other. You know, sometimes we go, oh, yeah, no, they just didn't have a good night's sleep. It's like, yeah, okay, sure. They didn't have a good night's sleep. They still went off at you and said a whole bunch of things that stuck to you. Sometimes you say things like, oh, um, it's not really that bad. Or you come to church and someone says to you, oh, you just need to show grace. And and do you know what? You do need to show grace, but not too quickly. You need to actually look at the thing for what it is. Because if you jump too quickly to forgiveness and grace, you don't fully reckon with what actually happened to you. And sometimes people even just put it away and they don't want to look at it, but it keeps popping up. So here's a line that I've used lots of times with people. That is a thing. I remember someone coming and seeing me uh, a while ago and... um, they told me about some struggle that they had in their life. And, and I, said, I said to them, I said, you know what? I said, that person, you know that person that you're talking about, that you're explaining kind of away the things that they've done, they sinned against you. That's what they did. They sinned against you. And do you know how many times I've said that to people in my office downstairs? It's like, that's the thing. They sinned against you. And it's a thing because God says it's a thing. But sometimes what you need is you need someone in the flesh to say, that's a thing. That's a thing. 
Someone who can call it as it is. I mean, this is one of the things that happens in restore groups. But it's also what we need to do with one another. And some of you know what I'm talking about. You were sinned against. You just were. You were sinned against. And it was made unclear by a misunderstanding of grace and love. It was made unclear because people didn't want to face up to the discomfort. It was made unclear because people had agendas. See, being clear about God and what is good and evil is critical. And I want to say to you this morning, it's critical to the mission of this church. If we are not clear about who God is and what good and evil is, it will affect us. It will affect the people that God leads us to minister to. And it'll hamstring our mission to see people be restored. I want to give you an invitation. If you've never had someone call what happened to you as it is, I would be more than happy to do that. Come and tell me your story. Tell me your story after church today. Make an appointment with me this week. Catch up with one of the elders and tell them what happened to you. You see, the, there's going to be a mixture of people in the room here, and we'll get to this in a minute, but um, the people who are victims of injustice generally are the people who are weaker. And I don't mean that just within their personality. I just mean they're, they're, just, they're just weaker. The strong people are the ones that tend to cause injustice, and the weaker people, the, the people with less of a voice are the people who tend to be the victims of it. That's why there's not many men who are the victims of domestic violence on the news. There's some, but there's not many. There's nowhere near as many because men are, in most cases, men are physically stronger. Our call as a church is to give a voice to the voiceless, isn't it? Anyway, I need to keep going. Injustice, you know, so you can identify some injustice that's been done to them. Injustice has a way of stirring up a cry for justice in our hearts, right? We long for it, especially when we've been a victim of it. You know, people say to me things like, it's not fair, and I go, it's not. It's not fair. And sometimes, you know, I sit with people with the things that have happened to them and I go, it's not fair and it should be. It should be fair. It should be right. And so let's finish here. Where, what, what's the antidote to this problem? Well, the antidote, according to Malachi, is very clear. Um, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. He will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. And the fearsome kind of line there at the end there, I'm going to come and put you on trial. What's the antidote to the problem here? the Israelites well it's actually the exact opposite of how Malachi opened the passage remember back at the beginning of the passage the the Israelites view of God was incorrect well what's God going to do to 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 kind of deal with this injustice he's going to show up and everyone's going to see him as he truly is he's going to come to his temple and the other thing remember uh, that uh, Malachi said at the start there is that the people were thinking God doesn't even care he's not going to come and judge what's this what's Malachi saying here oh he's coming to judge he's going to put people on trial and you know it's fierce isn't it, it it's I mean you read that and you go well this is wow <laughs> that's going to be intense it is there is a fierce justice kind of coming and I would say to you this the, the the action of God needs to be fierce because the injustice in the world is fierce isn't it 
and, and it's confronting. And, and someone is going to come. God himself is going to come and he's going to stand up to it and make everything right. And justice will be done. Amen? Justice will be done. The cry in every single person's heart for there to be justice is going to be satisfied. Whatever injustice has happened to you, whatever injustice has happened to your next door neighbor, whatever has happened to your children, to your parents, to your community, it will all be done. But if you stop for a moment um, and think about this, there's, there's a bit of a problem with this, right? Um, because despite the, unjust, or the unjust ways that we've been treated, No one in this room is exclusively a victim of injustice. True. We, we too have dealt it out. I remember talking to a guy when I lived in Sydney and he, uh, he, we were having this conversation. I, I can't even quite remember, but I don't even think he was a, I don't think he was a Christian guy, but he was, he was thinking about the faith. But um, he asked me this question. He goes, why doesn't God get rid of all the evil in the world? And, um, Good question. Question lots of people have asked, and I said to him, uh, oh, "It depends on how much you want him to get rid of." All right? And he goes, "What do you mean?" I said, "Because if you're wanting to get rid of everything, he's got to get rid of all of us as well." It's kind of like, "What do you want him to do?" And. And there's a bit of a vibe going on here in this passage, to be honest, that um, the people want God to come. And this is, this is quite common. You see this in the book of Amos as well, that the Israelites are like, God, we want you to come. We want you to sort things out. You can see this kind of vibe that um, happens when Jesus is kicking around um, in the first century too, where it's like, God, come and sort it out and just get all the bad guys. And Malachi speaks to this and just goes, he can endure the day of his coming. He can stand when he appears. You know, when it comes to justice, Jesus is going to bring, uh, sorry, the kind of justice Jesus is going to bring, it's going to be all in, folks. It's not just everyone else. It's going to be us too. Everyone's going to be in play at that point. And what I want to actually do is um, back up for a second And I want to just um, go to verse 1 and 2. You can see verse 1 and 2 in the, in the first part of that, that scripture on the screen. And, and I, I want to ask you the question, which coming of Jesus is Malachi talking about? Right? Because if you look at the, uh, the first verse there at the top, um, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. That sounds like who? Anyone got an idea who that sounds like? John the Baptist, right? And actually the, um, the gospel writers actually quote this part of Malachi and say it is John the Baptist, right? So you kind of read that and then you go, then uh, suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. So and it, it kind of it sounds like the first one. And then you read on a bit more and it gets pretty fierce and you go, oh, geez, I don't really know whether Jesus actually did all of that the first time around. And it actually starts to sound like the second one. And I think this is just a classic case uh, with the prophets where the prophet has just run from the first coming of Jesus to the second one. Um, and, and so what I want to suggest to you today is uh, there is a big time gap in between verse 1 and verse 2 in Malachi chapter 3. Um, and, and do you know something? There's a big difference between the way Jesus turns up in his first coming and the way he's going to turn up in his second coming. You know, hurt and pain and injustice, in a sense, quite rightly stirs in our, up in us this desiring for the second coming kind of Jesus to come, right? Doesn't it? It's just like, 
I get them. Like telling your dog to sick someone. You know, it's like they, they got me. You, you need to get them. All right? And, and there's some of that that's true. But here's, here's what I want to say to you, especially if you're someone who's been the victim of injustice and the pain is very, very real. Just not quite there yet. <laughs> okay? We're, we're still in between verse 1 and verse 2. So the question is, what was Jesus on about in his first visit? And it's kind of like, if we can be clear about how Jesus turns up in the first visit, we'll work out how to live in between verse 1 and verse 2. Are you with me? We'll just, that'll be clear for us. Uh, well, I'll tell you something. When Jesus came the first time around, do you know what he did? He came to bring justice wherever he went. People got healed, demons got kicked out. But his main focus was to satisfy the justice of God on our behalf by hanging on a Roman cross. That's what he came for. He came to go to the cross. And he said that over and over and over. It was the purpose of why he came. Because there's a justice that is required of every single person. Because we've done wrong. We haven't done what we should have done. And if he didn't come and hang on a Roman cross for us, we would have to pay for that. But because he did come and hang on a Roman cross, he took the punishment and the weight of all of the things that we've done. He satisfied the justice of God so that people could turn to him and not have to bear the weight of that. That's good, isn't it? That's what he did the first time around. And I want you to hear this. The first time Jesus came, he came not as a judge. He came as an advocate. That's what he came as. And we see this very thing in 1 John 2 verse 1 to 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have what? An advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours but also for the sins of the whole world. The second time he comes, he'll come as judge. (laughs) He'll clean everything up. Everything will be right. And I'll tell you something, if you have run to him for forgiveness and purification and cleansing... You have nothing to fear on his second coming. Only the full restoration of you and everyone else who loves him. And that's something to look forward to, isn't it? He will be the refiner's fire. He will be the purifier with the the launderer's soap that Malachi talks about in Malachi chapter 3. But the question remains. How do we live in between the first two verses of chapter 3? especially when injustice wants to provoke us to a second coming kind of approach to injustice, right? It wants to push us to be vigilantes, to become the judge. But here's the bottom line. We are not very good judges. Can anyone give me an amen for that? We are not very good judges. And I'll tell you something, in God's story, he is not doing auditions for the judge role, right? He just isn't. Now, you can sit there and you can... And, and, and the pain can be very, very real. But don't put yourself in the judge role, right? Because you won't be a good one and he's already got one and he's just fine, thanks. So what do we do? What do we do? How do we live in the story in between verse 1 and verse 2? How do we live in a world where there's so much injustice? And here's, here's what I think we need to do. We just need to imitate him in his first visit. <laughs> that's, that's what we should do. Um... We, we take him with us and we bring justice wherever we go as best as we can. We, uh, uh, what, does it, what does it look like? It looks like us being advocates for people who don't have a voice, people who are weak, people who are victims of injustice. I want to close with this story. Um, 
in uh, Malachi 3, Malachi makes the statement. He says, the Lord will suddenly come to his temple. Now, Jesus went to the temple regularly. He, he at least went to the temple uh, every year. Um, but there was a really notable time when he went to the temple, wasn't there? Can you think of it, those who have read your Bibles? Can you remember what was happening? It was this, this court, which was for the Gentiles, which is anyone who wasn't a Jew. And it was, it was meant to be a place where the Gentiles could actually pray and connect with God. But in this court, there were all these money changes and people selling doves and people buying and selling all sorts of things. And it was in the court of the Gentiles. That was the place that was dedicated to them, for them to connect with God. And it was so unjust for the Jews to be doing that there. What did Jesus do? Well, he advocated for the Gentiles, didn't he? He drove them out and he overturned their tables and he said, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations but you have made it a den of robbers. This is the Jesus who lives inside of us by spirit. (laughs) This is the Jesus that came. It was the verse one Jesus that turned up. And we carry him with us. And until he comes back as judge to clean everything up, his call for you and I, is to be people that carry him with us and bring about justice wherever we can. We need to see things clearly. We need to see good and evil clearly. We need to call injustice what it is. Then we need to engage with it. We need to advocate for the victims of it and then help them on a pathway to restoration. Is our job. We have been sent by Jesus to be the antidote for the injustice of the world. Do you hear that? I wonder if the band had come up. I'm going to pray. Um, And we'll finish. Might, this, uh, this might be a bit risky. This, this may fail spectacularly. Um, but I'd, I would like to pray at the start for people who have been victims of injustice and who just go, the pain, the pain is real. Um, maybe you've worked through it. Maybe you've done all that you can. Maybe the people who did it have done all that they can, whatever, but it's still it's still there for you. Um, not asking you to say what it is, right? Uh, it could have been that someone... I was going to make a joke about cats, but uh, I'll, uh, I'll resist. So it could be that somebody just ran over your, your pet on the road or something. I don't know. Uh, that's okay. Or it could be high-end stuff um i don't know i just feel like i want to pray for you um so uh pray for um for things to be seen clearly because uh, i think that the more we see things clearly the more we will be clear about how god wants to restore us so if that's you this is the risky bit i'll just invite you just to stand uh, and then in a moment, if, if that is not you, I'll, I'll invite you to stand and, and join everyone else who's standing. Is that, is that okay? 
Um, so if you want to stand now, uh, I'll, uh, I'll pray for you, and the rest of us can pray for you too. God, you have seen everything. You were in the room, in the car. in the restaurant, down the street, when that thing happened, or those things happened. There is no one who is clearer about the injustice that has gone on for these people than you. There's no one that has a bigger heart for them than you. really want you to help them can you help them in all the bits and pieces that they need to be helped just help them if they need to see what happened to them more clearly and call it what it is I pray that you'd help them to do that if they've done all that if they've had all the conversations and it still sits there I pray that you would pray that you would heal them. Just invite everyone else to stand with them. And God, would you help us to be a people who carry the advocate with us Help us to be a people who are advocates for those who have been the who are the victims of injustice. Would you strengthen us internally? Would you fill us ongoingly by your Spirit, so that little pockets of justice can happen all over the place? Make us a people that have got hearing ears, ears so that we can listen to people and then speak things that are clarifying and helpful and healing. Amen.